just going to dive right in. Um, for those who are new before I do that, actually my name is David, I'm part of the leadership team here in Redeemer and I want to extend a really warm welcome to you if you're, if you're new, if this is your first time with us, even if you've been just connecting with us over recent weeks or months, I want to extend a really warm welcome. Um, and please do let us know if there's any way we can serve you or help you connect um, into the community here. Let me tell you three stories. Greta Thunberg, story number one, Greta. Story number two, Dorothy. Story number three, Vincent. Let's start with Greta. Greta Thunberg began a global war movement by skipping school in August 2018. She spent her days camped out the front of the Swedish parliament, holding a sign painted in black letters on a white background that read, School Strike for Climate. In the 16 months since, she's addressed heads of state at the UN, met with the Pope, sparred with the President of the United States of America, if you've seen that, and inspired four million people to join a global climate strike on September 20th in what was the largest climate demonstration in human history. Her image has been celebrated in murals, Halloween costumes, and her name has been attached to everything from bike shares to Beatles. Margaret Atwood compared her to Joan of Arc. <laughs> After noticing a hundredfold increase in its usage, lexiographers at Collins Dictionary named Thunberg's pioneering idea, climate strike, the word of the year. The politics of climate action are as entrenched and as complicated as the phenomenon itself, and Thunberg has no magic solution. But she has succeeded in creating a global attitudinal shift transforming millions of vague middle-of-the-night anxieties into a worldwide movement calling for urgent change. She has offered a moral clarion call to those who are willing to act, and she has hurled shame on those who do not. She's persuaded leaders from mayors to presidents to make commitments where they've previously fumbled. And after she spoke at Parliament, the British Environmental Group, Extinction Rebellion, the UK passed a law requiring the country to eliminate its carbon footprint. She has focused the world's attention on environmental injustices that young indigenous activists have been protesting for years. Because of her, hundreds of thousands of little Gretas from Lebanon to Liberia, Liberia sorry, have skipped school to lead their peers in climate strikes around the world. Al Gore, the former vice president of the United States, said this moment does feel different. Throughout history, many great morally-based movements have gained traction at the very moment when young people decided to make that movement their cause. That's from Time magazine. Greta was Time Person of the Year 2019. Story number two, Dorothy. You've always had the power to go back to Kansas. The good witch Glinda reminded her. And Dorothy, who had known this intuitively, replied, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard, because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Anyone recognize the, the lines? It's from that uh, famous cinematic classic, The Wizard of Oz, that we've probably all seen far too many times. And at the start of the movie, after the credits roll, we're introduced to the, the Kansas farm girl, Dorothy, and her little dog, Toto. And they begin an adventure, running away, from home down a dusty old country trail through the plains of middle America, meeting interesting characters along the way on an adventure that parallels 
I suppose some might say an unconscious dream down the yellow brick road and then trying to find her way home again. Aren't we all, like Dorothy, trying to find our way home again? Story number three, Vincent. The rain was bouncing off the concrete surface of the long and endlessly buzzing streets of New York when Beth and I, in December, were running from the shelter we'd find into one of those famous yellow taxis. The MoMA, I shouted to the taxi driver, heads to the MoMA. 10 minutes later, we pulled up at the front doors where crowds of other visitors in New York had, had the same idea that we had to stay dry and wander around the cavernous spaces of the Museum of Modern Art for the afternoon. We were relieved to be out of the rain and interested in exploring. But there was one piece of work that I really wanted to see, one work that I wanted to lay my eyes on. One of my favorites is Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night. As Thomas Burton says, wheels of fire, cosmic, rich, full-blooded, honest, victories over desperation, permanent victory. I just think it's a beautiful painting. I love Van Gogh, we got our tickets, we grabbed the guide and we started wandering and wandering. First floor east, first floor west, pieces of art on the wall, exhibition rooms, second floor north, second floor south, more rooms, interesting rooms, thought-provoking art, third floor, cabinets of clay pieces and sculptures, the cafe, the courtyard, the design shop with all wonderful things that we can buy. Little do we know that like three hours had passed by and we'd only got halfway through the museum. Poor Vincent was stuck at the top at the back and we didn't know the museum was closing at 6 p.m. Only when the Tannoy announcement said, bing bong, the museum is closing in 15 minutes. Beth and I looked at each other and thought, we can't come to New York and not see Vincent. So immediately we ran, having misjudged our pace, something that is a common thing in my life, I guess. Um, climbing two more flights of stairs to find Vincent, we started moving faster and faster, pushing through visitors. Round the maze of white rooms, all looked the same. Uh, paintings upon paintings. Um, in the panic, I guess, that we had, trying to walk fastly but not look ridiculous. We heard the security guards beginning to usher people out. We're closing, we're closing. We turned another way. More people exiting, hundreds of people trying to come out and we're trying to go the opposite way. I guess strategically, Vincent van Gogh's story is at the back of the room, at the top floor deliberately, because it's one of the most expensive and exquisite masterpieces. Room 517. So we're on the fifth floor now, we turn a corner. And I realized that we're running past Matisse and Warhol and Picasso. And I'm like, ah, those guys too. But I had to go to see Vincent. We'd completely misjudged our afternoon. I saw them though. We run up and there it is, the starry night, 15 feet away, five people deep, hundreds of people gathered around it, snapping pictures, taking selfies, trying to just get a sneak glimpse of the starry night before the museum closed, just like we had. Polite yet authoritative security guard with his radio was like, we're closed, we're closed, knowing that it would probably take 10 minutes to get everybody down the stairs a night. So I saw a glimpse, there it is. I think there's another photo as well, which is a bit embarrassing. That's, that's me taking a selfie that far away from one of my favorite paintings. And we can go back to the previous one for a sec. <laughs> Embarrassing, but I mean, I saw it for five seconds and then I realized I was relieved that I saw it. 
And then I was like, oh, dang, that painting really deserved at least 10 minutes of my deepest contemplation. And I give it five seconds. Three stories with Greta, with Dorothy, and we had Vincent. Last week, uh, Gillian and I, we had a conversation up here at the front, and we were talking about the sense of a season of church life that we're beginning to enter into, particularly the kinds of things that are on Gillian's heart at the moment, and our heart as a leadership team. And we were sharing about the sense that we're being invited. There's like a divine invitation for us as a church. There always is, but particularly in 2020, the start of a new year, the start of a new decade, and also spiritually, the time has struck. I suppose the Spirit is nudging us to draw deeper, closer to God in these days, to engage boldly and faithfully in intercession. And that's why we're doing a week of prayer and fasting next week, which I'll speak about later. We've been reflecting upon this, and as leaders, we want to actually help think about that and also equip this community, ourselves, with a way to, to do that, with a way to, to take up that divine invitation to draw closer to the Lord and to intercede on behalf of our world, our personal worlds, our local worlds, our global world. And so we're doing that because we believe that God's effectively inviting us to wake up, as Gillian was saying, to awaken, to awaken to what he wants to do in our lives. And so the series that we're going to begin is going to help us to do that. So Greta and Dorothy and Vincent, what have they got to do with anything? I think these three stories are so different, and we can take them in literal and metaphorical ways. Obviously, they're not all true. I don't think The Wizard of Oz is true. But they feature the same kinds of awakening or realization like Greta, I believe we must wake up to the idea that something's going wrong in this world that we live in. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, I think we must wake up and realize that maybe we're far from home and we've been longing for something else, Oz, and chasing it. Yet really what we really long for is Kansas, where we were made to be. And like my visit to Vincent, perhaps if we really want to see the thing we want to see and experience the thing we want to experience, that we shouldn't be distracted on the first floor of life. And we need to start there first and go against the crowd. Don't work up the building, but go there first and start where you want to start at the starry night. And we can see all the rest of the stuff on the way down. Something's not right with the world. We are lost or feel lost at times and long for home. And to truly experience a masterpiece or sit in the presence of the master, perhaps we shouldn't follow the crowd and wander in the noise and distraction but we should go right there immediately. Here's the, the thing. I think the promises of our cultural age and the promises of our political elites in this day are actually failing us and falling flat. 
We have endless opportunities today, as you will know, to pursue pleasure and desire. And yet so many of us are miserable and anxious. Or can go through seasons like that in our lives, myself included. We can, tra we can traverse geography and time and space, and yet loneliness is on the rise. Silicon Valley promises a more connected world through social media that we will be a better world, that we will be a more tolerant world. And those kinds of claims do seem a little bit silly when you think of where we've got to in 2020. The assurances that a globalized world will be fairer or more peaceful, more prosperous place seem a little bit shaky. These failed promises are fueling this sense of a longing for home, like Dorothy, a desire to see something change, a hunger for a vision of personal and social life in which humans actually flourish. With some whiz, winsome wisdom, <clears throat> the monk uh, Thomas Keating, Father Thomas Keating, describes it like this. This is the human condition, to be without the true source of happiness, which is the experience of the presence of God. That's home. He goes on to say, and to have lost the key to happiness, which is the contemplative dimension of life the path to the increasing assimilation and enjoyment of God's presence. What we experience is our desperate search for happiness where it cannot be find, found. The source of true happiness, the experience of the presence of God and the lost key, the contemplative dimension of life as a way to find our way home to the presence of God. So something is broken, we're longing for home, we're getting led astray, and I, I'm reminded immediately, maybe you are too, of a particular couple in the Bible, the first couple, Adam and Eve, when you think about them once at home in their proverbial Kansas, their Eden, their garden, in the presence of God, and all was well, and yet they then find themselves thrown into a world which, which was not intended a world that was in chaos, a world that was broken. And they exchange the constant companion that was the presence of God in their lives for shame and for anxiety and for isolation. Feeling alienated far from home. And they leave Eden. They leave the garden. They're sent out yet with the markings, the GPS coordinates of home marked on their heart and yet they're sent out, longing for a way back home. So the reality is this, that in our Western secular culture, it's having a bit of a breakdown. We're not really progressing, are we, if we're being honest, in the way that we would have hoped. It's actually taking 17-year-old girls in Sweden to help us to wake up to one aspect of a secular Western society that seems to be regressing and not actually completely progressing. It's broken. And I think a lot of us in this room are exhausted and we're tired and we can feel, feel anxious. And I believe we all are longing for home. Here is the thing that we're gonna keep preaching over and over again in Redeemer. 
and it's true, and yet sometimes for me, for our leaders, for some of you, it's not always our experience, but we hold on to it as truth. And this is, it is this, that our home is in the presence of God. That the presence of God is our constant companion and that we long to set down our shame and our anxiety and our confusion and our isolation and return home to Kansas, return home to Eden, return home to the presence of God. Just like my visit to Vincent, where I nearly missed it, I left it too late. We need to prioritize some things differently. Like the good witch said to Dorothy in the story, you've always had the power to go back to Kansas. I actually believe that we as a community, we as individuals, we as a society, in fact, we can do things differently. We don't need to be in the cycle that we find ourselves or can find ourselves in. But I do believe that we need a different approach. We do need to put some things in place. We do need to leave the first floor, the second floor, the third floor of life and the distractions and the noise and the crowds. And we need to start in a different place if we're gonna experience what we wanna experience. Psalm 1 describes a vision of human flourishing exactly like this. This is fifth floor contemplating the starry night type human flourishing. This is returning home to Kansas, human flourishing. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of living water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. The psalm offers us a vision of a life that is deeply rooted in streams of living water, like a tree planted by a stream of living water. I believe it's a metaphor for rooting ourselves in the presence of God. It's what we're made for. And to meditate on his law, on his word, on his goodness, on what he has spoken over us day and night. Jeremiah 6, 16 says this, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask for the good ways and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. I was struck by this because it seems that this is an instructive little piece of scripture that would say, how are we gonna do this? How do we make Psalm 1 real in our lives? How do we become those trees that are planted by streams of water? How do we do that? I believe a way that we can do that is to look for the ancient paths, the good way, and to walk in it, to walk in those ways and pursue rest for our souls. The ancient way, the Christian mystics, the contemplatives, the desert fathers, the apostles, they all pursued the presence of God. They all abided in the presence of God in Christ. And they all found rest for their souls. 
Do you long for rest for your soul? If you are in this room today and you are riddled with shame today, there is rest for your soul. If you are struggling with anxiety, like many of us have and maybe some of us continue to do, there is rest for your soul. If you feel isolated in this world or confused or overwhelmed, let me tell you that there is rest for your soul. And it is found in the presence of God. That is your home. That is where you belong. It is your Eden. It is your Kansas. And the power to return to Kansas is right with you. You can do it. So over the next six weeks, what we decided to do as leaders was to try and practically help us follow the proverbial yellow brick road home, the ancient path back home to practice the presence of God in our lives because this takes practice. This takes a little bit of work. This takes a decision to seek it out, much like I should have done in the moment. Should have sought out that thing that my heart wanted, the treasure that was in the top floor. I should have sought it out. I should have made a decision. Let's just go there first. And I could have enjoyed what I wanted to see. We have to make some decisions and we have to practice this thing that we call the presence of God in our lives because there's so much that is trying to undermine that in our lives and unravel it constantly every day. So, over the next six weeks, we're doing a series called Practicing Presence. The way to becoming an unanxious presence in an exhausted world. We met during the week as leaders, as uh, a preaching team met during the week, and we were pulling some ideas together, and we just really felt that this is appropriate for us to help us actually do the very thing that Gillian was speaking about last week, the very thing that um, we're talking about today. But we need a little bit of help. We need a little bit of framework. We've done this before, guys. I know we have. There's a whole series called Holy Habits from last year. You can go and dig it out and look it up. It's really, it's good. I think it's, it's, it's helpful teaching. There's books upon books that we can recommend. I think the key for us is to actually, actually do it, though. And not to just do it once, but to keep doing it. And so we're going to do six weeks of teaching, starting technically today, <laughs> if I even get to a little bit of, about fasting today. And we're, it's going to be a toolkit that's going to help us find the ancient path back home practicing the presence of God. We're going to look at silence and solitude and Sabbath. We're going to look at prayer. We're going to look at, as I say a little bit, hopefully today, fasting. And there's many other practices, but those are the six I think that we're going to, we're going to look at. And it's going to help us, as I say, practice the presence of God and experience his deep love in our lives. He is calling out for us. Richard Rohr says that we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We actually live, our way, live ourselves into new ways of thinking. This is the power of practices, and this is why we believe in practices. This is why we actually gather as the church every week. This is why we do this in community. This is why we rehearse the story of Jesus when we sing and worship. This is why we do the table with the bread and the wine. This is the why, we, why we practice these things, because it actually shapes us and forms us. And Christ is actually formed in us, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. And so we're going to go further with it than we have before. We're not just going to teach it for six weeks. We're going to teach it for six weeks so that we can actually practice it in Lent up to Easter. You get that? So there's like, it's, like a, it's like we're in training camp for six weeks. 
and then fight time is like Ash Wednesday, and from fight time through, I, I'm just a little, yeah, it's too much Conor McGregor in my head at the minute. Fight time, uh, fight time Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter is when we get to actually practice the stuff that we've been rehearsing and training a little bit. And we, we don't have the uh, infallible, we don't, we're not inf- the, you know, the infallible truth on this as teachers and preachers. There's resources out there that you can, that you can dig into, but hopefully it, it helps direct you in the right direction. One of the things we're doing, of course, Matt's really spoken about, is next, starting on Monday week, the 27th of January, we're having a week of prayer and fasting, a week of prayer and fasting. And as, as a community, we do this every, every year. We have a week of prayer and fasting in some shape or form. And we thought it would be great to start this off in 2020 in January. Sometimes we do it a little bit later. And as Matt's already said, we're going to have some, there's going to be an email coming out with some more information about what we're doing. But it's, it's essentially we're going to gather for the 27th, 28th, and 29th. So next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday here in this very room. And we're going to pray. And we're going to worship. We're going to seek God. And we're going to call us all to be fasting throughout that whole week. And we're going to open up the prayer room. And you're going to be able to book into the prayer room for individual slots or bring a a friend with you and you can be able to pray. The prayer room is just in behind the screen. There's a little room in there. It's a beautiful place to pray. We're going to open that up. Um, we might do one or two other things that are in the pipeline too, but essentially it's a one week set aside. It's another, I guess, tool in the toolkit, you know, to kickstart our year, help us to um, to do this and get on um, uh, practicing the presence of God. It's also going to help us to um, intercede on behalf of our community and our world. Um, so I'd love to invite you all as a community into that. And I, and I don't mean just to come to the evenings, although that would be wonderful. But I would love you to join with us as leaders in this practice that I'm going to talk about this morning for the rest of my time, which is fasting. Um, because it's a week of prayer. And fasting, because I really believe that there's something in this for us if we practice this, if we do this, if we set aside time and we withdraw from certain things, abstain from certain things in our lives, I I believe that is part of the way down this yellow brick road, practicing the presence of God in our lives. Yeah, you on board with that? Henry Nouwen calls calls this the... um, the first and foremost task to faithfully care for the inward fire. That's what he calls it. There's an inward fire that we need to tend to. Um, I thought it was a beautiful phrase. Fasting is a person's, we're gonna shift into fasting for, for the rest of our time. Is that okay? And get a little bit more specific this morning because I wanna give you something to go with and that sets us up well for next week. If we're going to do this, if we're going to practice the presence of God well in 2020, if we're going to reorientate ourselves to becoming a non-anxious presence in an exhausted world, if we're going to seek out the thing that our heart treasures, we're going to return home to the place where we feel we belong, the presence of God, and we need to find these ancient ways. And one of these ancient ways is fasting. It's part of all the world religions. It's been practiced by Moses, by King David, by Elijah, by Esther, by Daniel, by Anna the prophetess, by the Apostle Paul, by Christ himself. It's been practiced by Christians throughout the centuries. Confucius, the yogis of India, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, even the, the modern father. 
uh, the father, sorry, of modern medicine, Hippocrates believed in fasting. What is this practice? What is this first tool in the toolkit? What is fasting? Um, I know you've maybe all heard of it. I know a little bit about fasting in some simple terms. Fasting in the scriptures is a practice of abstaining from food for spiritual purposes, often done in conjunction with prayer. You may have heard of um, popular movements like intermittent fasting, you know, for health benefits. Some um, science is actually showing the benefits of actually with abstaining from food for periods of time and how that helps the body. And um, you've heard of that kind of fasting. Um, uh, but what we're talking about is something a little bit further than that, something a little bit more than that. We're talking about, I guess, our interest lies in the spiritual significance, not just the physical significance, although they're tied, of what fasting is. So very, very quickly, I'm going to just sketch out what this is. Jesus taught fasting, Matthew 6. I just want to read this passage. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their word. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pursuing this rest for our souls. Fasting. It's clear that Jesus taught this. It's not an if, but it's a when. So we, it's a biblical. It's bibl It's a biblical teaching from Jesus. The pattern here is when you pray, when you give, when you fast. Not if. And so we see that the practice of fasting is not this empty practice that is practiced by religious people in a bygone era, but it's this central core practice of the Christian faith. I sometimes just think I don't fast enough. It's really, really important. It's actually up, it's really up there, like in the worship church stuff, prayer, like fasting. Is, we never really talk about fasting, and yet it's really, really core practice of the Christian faith. Jesus taught it. In his Sermon on the Mount, he taught fasting alongside giving and alongside prayer. And nearly like these are three core practices of his followers, so we can't dismiss it. And the interesting thing about fasting is the very thing we've been talking about uh, all morning, that fasting is about encountering the presence of God. It's about encountering the Father. Jesus is interested in fasting done in the right way. Uh, he doesn't want it to drift off into this um, self-absorption or self-righteousness. Um, the Pharisees drawing attention to themselves in public. What Jesus is illustrating, the main focus is to go into the secret place and to be with the Father, to be with God. Um, as I've said, there's lots of reasons to abstain from food. If you're a hunger striker and you have a political point to make, you will abstain, abstain from food. If you're dieting, you will abstain from food for different reasons, physical reasons. But the, the practice of fasting we're talking about is for practicing the presence of God in our lives. It is for prayer, it is for repentance, for dependence, for encounter, for intimacy with the Father. To cultivate a reliance and a dependence upon him. And it is this practice like so much in the kingdom of God that actually turns logic on its head because a practice that looks like it induces a kind of weakness, a kind of lack of energy, actually leads to, to true spiritual power. 
Dallas Willard talks about fasting like this, that fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. There is no place that we see this more clearly in the Gospels than in Matthew 4 when Jesus himself goes into the wilderness, you know, for the wilderness and has the three temptations. Um, after 40 days and 40 nights, it says he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, Jesus answered to the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. Blessed is the one who is like the tree planted by streams of living water. Meditating on the law of God day and night like in Psalm 1. So fasting is more about self-denial and giving up of indulgences. It's about preparation. It's more than about self-denial and giving up of indulgences. It's about preparation and it's about encounter. And it's in the, in the desert that Jesus experienced these deep temptations, but he also experienced the sustaining presence of God in his life. The, the word of God that fed and nourished his soul. So he has taught us, not if we fast, but when we fast. And he has shown us in his own life by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and by finding that it is the word of God and God's sustaining presence that nourishes him through the deepest and darkest temptations of his life. So he is our example. He is our example. Everything Jesus did came from that place, came from his relationship to his father, came from his relationship with with his father, with his Lord, being at home in the presence of God, being in that place of belonging, being in that place that he was created to be. And it's the same for us to lean into our relationship with God, to follow that yellow brick road home to Kansas, to be in the presence of God is what we're made for. And so the invitation is still there to set down the shame and the anxiety and the isolation and to return home to Kansas, to return home to Kansas. Brian McLaren says that, you've heard of a phrase called practice makes perfect? Brian McLaren says that practice makes possible. There is something that can be accessed in the spiritual life through fasting that nothing else can access. There is stuff for us there. If we place ourselves in that place, if we put ourselves in that place of abstaining from food or abstaining from something else in your life that that is got a whole, that you need, that you've got a craving for. For me, I feel like as we approach the prayer and fasting week, I'm considering what I'm gonna give up for the week and it may not actually be food. For me, it might be some other stuff in my life. It, It actually feels like it might be to do with like, my consumption of, of news and technology and what that does to my soul. But for you, it might be food. Or it might be something else that you want to give up for a week. But it's in the practice that makes possible, Brian McLaren says. There's some stuff that just can't be accessed in the spiritual life unless we practice it and 
fasting is one of those practices, that there is just stuff for us there that we maybe cannot access. There is a, a depth in our relationship to the Lord. There is the presence of God. There is the sense of the sustenance of God, the nourishment that we get when we abstain from something, we lean into um, God and God alone. There's a mystery to that, I know. But it says in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching, he says that, um, that, your, that your fasting is not seen by others, but instead by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we go and seek after God in fasting and prayer, there is something there for us. There there is a power there, there is an intimacy there, and there is an opportunity for things to happen. There is possibility that can come from this. There is an opportunity when we fast and when we pray, when we set ourselves aside like that, for things to shift in our lives, in our families' lives, in our churches' lives. If you're feeling stuck, on this journey home, if you're feeling stuck in your relationship with God, I believe that fasting is a real grace to you. It's a real grace to me. It's a real grace to us. It can liberate us in transforming ways. Thomas Ryan, a Roman Catholic priest, in his book, The Sacred Act of, of Fasting, reminds us that fasting is tapping into the grace of God. The tendency, he says, is to think that God will love us if we change. But God loves us so we can change. Practices and disciplines like fasting enable us to appropriate and make real in our lives the freedom given through grace. Jen Hatmaker says that the spirit of a fast, an intentional reduction, a deliberate abstinence to summon God's movement in my life, she says, a fast creates margin for God to move. A fast creates margin for God to move. So as I think about this practice and as I set it in the toolbox alongside all these other practices that we're going to explore, I really believe and feel that as a community, there is a divine invitation for us, Redeemer, to not miss this. Try it out. Try it out. Take God at his word. Think about this. Pray about this. Meditate on this. If we acknowledge that there is something broken in this world, and we see little Greta Thunberg, if we think of the heart of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and her desire to go home, if we think about my silly trip to the MoMA, trying to see the starry night and completely nearly missing it because I didn't think about this. I didn't plan it right. <laughs> if we really want to live a different way in this world, if we want to escape the exhaustion and we want to return to the constant companionship that is found in the presence of God and on our home, in our Eden, then I believe we need to make some changes because if we keep doing the same things, nothing will change. And so I really believe that this is a beautiful divine invitation to lean into these promises, to lean into this truth in this season. And I would love to invite us to do it together. And it's not just for the week of prayer and fasting. This is just going into the 2020 and we're gonna do this right up to Easter. 
have a focus on the practices, but particularly next week, we are setting aside that week to pray, to fast. And I would love to invite you into it. I would love to invite you into it because I believe it, in it there might be some manna for you that will nourish your soul in this season. Whatever you're walking through right now, I believe that God will meet you as you lean into him more. I'd love you to stand. I'd love to invite the band up. If you're new to Redeemer, um, you will not know this, um, but we practice the table every week, which is the Eucharist, the communion, bread and the wine that's behind me. It's also on a table at the back there as well. And there's a gluten-free option here on my little crackers, and there's juice. And this is a practice that was instituted by Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And this do in remembrance of him. But we believe that not only that this is actually um, a symbolic of his body and blood, but also it is in a mysterious way, what we might call sacramental, it is loaded with opportunity to engage the very presence of Christ here today. I believe that we believe here in Redeemer <laughs> that if we build and center everything around Jesus, that is, that is what we're called to do. That Jesus is at the center of this community. And Jesus is the true manna, the bread of life that will nourish us and sustain us. So as we consider the journey ahead into 2020, as we think about the things we've talked about today, as we reflect upon the state of our own hearts and our own souls. Maybe some of you aren't exhausted today, maybe some of you are doing really well, but I believe an awful lot of us are, are hungry, are tired, and we need nourishment for the journey ahead. And so at the table, I believe here, we can actually experience something of the presence of Christ presence of God in our lives to come and be nourished by the bread and the wine. So I want to invite you to come to the table. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this table. I thank you for the elements, the bread and the wine that remind us of the body and the blood of Christ given for us as a way to bring us back home bring us back home. Jesus, you're the way. Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, all that you mean to us. We want to ce celebrate you today. And we want to return home. We want to experience the presence, the deep joy, the deep rest in our souls this morning that you bring. We pray as we come to the table, Lord, that you would minister to us, that you would bring rest to our souls. Um, and inspire us for this journey ahead, inspire us for the next six weeks, inspire us for the, for the next number of months to be a community that really seeks after you and really practices the presence in this place. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness and for your presence with us. We love you.